Throughout almost all our history, the population of the United States of America has grown and grown and grown from two and a half million people in 1776 to 330 million people today. But what if that growth stops? What if our population shrinks? What then? One man has devoted himself to studying that very question. Dr. Nicholas Eberstadt on Uncommon Knowledge Now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. A fellow with the American Enterprise Institute, Dr. Eberstadt, I should say, by the way, that we're filming today at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. Dr. Nicholas Eberstadt earned both his undergraduate degree and his doctorate in political economy from Harvard. Dr. Eberstadt's many books and papers include Poverty in China and The End of North Korea. In recent years, Dr. Eberstadt has been examining population and demography. First, he recognized that other countries have a problem publishing Russia's peacetime demographic crisis in 2010. In more recent years, he has been describing this country's problem, publishing Men Without Work, America's Invisible Crisis in 2016. Our topic today, well, let me just read the title of a long essay Dr. Eberstadt published in National Review not long ago. Can America Cope with Demographic Decline? Nick, thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me, Peter. It's a pleasure to see you. And it's a pleasure to have, have you to myself to read an Eberstadt essay with Nick Eberstadt. All right. Nick Eberstadt, I'm quoting you. Over the past decade and more, since the crash of 2008 and the Great Recession, really, America's birth trends have taken a fateful turn, veering well below the replacement level. Close quote. What is the replacement level? What does it mean to veer below? What makes us suppose this is ominous? Uh, the replacement level or a net reproduction ratio of one means that there's one baby girl born for every childbearing woman uh, who's going to make it up to childbearing age herself. What this means is that a society is on a long-term trajectory for population stability without compensating immigration or anything like that to keep things at stability or above. Um, for 30 years uh, before the crash of 2008, almost 30 years, the United States was the lone uh, large rich society that was at replacement or slightly above the replacement level, above this, let's say, 2.1 births per woman per lifetime level, roughly speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, we, have, uh, we have slumped steadily since 2008. We've been uh, on an escalator going down. And of course, the COVID shock uh, didn't get everybody into the bedrooms having babies. Uh, it actually had the opposite effect. The United States is now maybe on track to be 20% below the replacement level uh, if current trends continue, which is a weasel word we always have to use because demographers are really pretty clueless about forecasting fertility into the future. But if current trends continue, uh, the United States would be on a track without compensating immigration to shrink 20% for each generation, each succeeding generation. And this is entirely new in our history. We had a blip. Uh, in the 1970s, which uh, some of us are old enough to remember weren't a super great time in the United States, where snapshot calculations of replacement rates had us below replacement for a while. Uh, what was really going on in those days was that uh, there's a big shift in timing of kids. 
women were deciding to have their, they ended up deciding to have about the same number of babies. They just decided to have them later. Mm. And if you did the snapshot for a couple of years, it looked like there was a dip below replacement. What's going on now does not look like a uh, shift in timing. It looks like there may be a shift in the total number of desired children that young people wish to have. All right. So there is, there is, this is tremendously arresting, to put it mildly. You get a country growing and growing and growing, and now in historical terms, quite suddenly, it looks as though the growth may stop. Absent immigration will come to immigration. The next question, of course, is, well, what does it matter? The European Union is ahead of us, if that's the way to put it. They're, they expect their population, their fertility level has been down for several decades. They expect their population to begin shrinking, what, within a decade or so. At the, at the end of this interview, I think. At the end of this interview, Russia's in worse case. China, from the point of view of population, is in worse circumstances still. In spite of having eliminated the one-child policy, Chinese just aren't having children. The birth rate is, I think, you, the number you gave was 1.3. Yeah, it's, it's, it's plunged since the end of the uh, coercive one-child policy for some fascinating reason. All right. So the question would be, for those immediately seeking reassurance, well, 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 this may be happening to us. It seems to happen all over, let us call broadly construed the modern world and other countries are in worse shape, we're still retaining our relative position. We still have relative growth. And then Nick Everstadt says, well, maybe, but the formula by which the U.S. ascended to its current status of wealth and power was predicated on over two centuries of continuous and exceptional population growth unique among Western countries in tempo and scale, close quote. We don't know how to be a country without economic, without population growth. The last time that we faced the specter of population decline, which might be a clearer term than demographic decline, which sounds you know, kind of like Spenglerian. Um, the last time we faced the specter of population decline was in the Great Depression uh, for reasons that we can imagine, right? Um, not a time of great optimism about the future, uh, almost no immigration, uh, and the projections from the 1930s had us peaking and declining by 1960s. Those were as wrong as demographic projections so often turn out to be. Um, it didn't happen that way. But we're back to a moment where it is very, uh, plausible to think our population may peak and decline. Uh, the latest information from the Census Bureau uh, reports that U.S. population growth, measured U.S. population growth, never been as tiny as it was last year. The, uh, and that's births, deaths, and immigration make for the total. We've never had a confluence of births, deaths, and immigration that ended up with such a fractional increase in U.S. population since we started collecting measurable statistics. And, and what, the question would be, why does that matter to our health, our buoyancy, our economic growth? I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking of crude the thoughts. You can count on thoughts that come to my mind to be crude thoughts, Nick. So I'll offer a crude thought. I can two. be pretty crude if and you want me to. <laughs> but I think to myself, all right, real estate. Yeah. All those overbuilt neighborhoods in Las Vegas, all the building in Florida, yeah. those huge tracts being erected in Texas. Mm -hmm. What happens if nobody is around to live in them? You get, you get a, a whole, you can't, there's a, banking, borrowing, legal system that does property, you get a whole sector of the economy predicated on the existence of growing numbers of human beings. And that just goes away if the population stops growing. Is that correct? And there are other, there, there's some tie between economic growth 
and population growth. And if population stops growing, economic growth gets harder. It's more complicated than that, but tease that out for me. Yeah, so you know, we can look at it uh, two ways. We can look at it as you know, kind of like the headcount rancher sort of way of looking at population. If we look at its components and what we might call the productivity or uh, human capital, the quality of human resources, uh, if we want to get into this a little bit more. I was always a skeptic of the population scare back in the 70s and even into the 80s, um, the idea that we were going to end up denuding the world like locusts by just having too many people. Because looking at the components of population change, the population explosion wasn't driven because we, you know, we're breeding like rabbits. It was because we stopped dying like flies. It was because it was a health explosion. Well, if you have to deal with a population problem, I'll take a health explosion any day of the week, right? Because right. you can mess it up, but you've got a lot of potential there. Um, I'm also, uh, I'm, I would want to caution against people who are alarmist about population decline in a world that is bursting with health and bursting with innovation and technological potentialities. We've got, we've got an escalator that we can work with that's moving in the right direction there. We have to, you have to be a, pretty mindful about what you do, but if you surf that wave, uh, a aging and shrinking society can not only maintain its prosperity, but improve it. Um, if we look at what's happening now in the U.S., I mean, we can, see what's, we can see what's troubling if we break it down into births, deaths, and immigration. Mm -hmm. okay. um, people will have uh, a debate about what the right number of births is, and I don't think that I can tell parents how many children they should have. People know themselves what they think the right number of children is. Leave that aside for a moment. Everybody agrees that less deaths is better than more deaths, and longer lives and better health is better than the opposite. The United States has been moving in a very troubling direction for the past decade. Uh, we've basically flatlined in uh, improvements in life expectancy. Uh, even before COVID, we were creeping along. Uh, with COVID, of course, we've had a severe, almost catastrophic setback in health levels for the United States. And apart from COVID itself, as you know, Peter, we've had this problem of deaths of despair in the United States with um, suicide and uh, drug poisonings and cirrhosis and all of the rest, which looks a little bit too much like Russia for comfort, I'd say. Um, so the increase in deaths that we have seen over the last decade and more, it should be a flashing red warning sign for us. Mm. Immigration. We're, uh, the arithmetic of American population growth has been the arithmetic of our exceptional immigration flows, uh, which came in a wave up to World War I and then resumed again in the 60s, really. Um, during the COVID uh, calamity, uh, despite all of the um, uh, comedy or tragedy that we see on our southern border today, uh, it appears that immigration uh, tanked and that net immigration, we don't have any good immigration statistics. No other open society has good immigration statistics. We find out in the rearview mirror by looking at the residual after we look at births, deaths, and population change. It appears that our net immigration has tanked as well, and we're already seeing the effects of that in the United States with the spike in unfilled job openings uh, since COVID began. So that's, immigration is a hot button political issue. I happen to be of the uh, variety that thinks that on the whole immigrants have made terrific Americans right. and, uh, uh, and that 
We've benefited tremendously from the international talent that has come to our country. Uh, that it's if we want to uh, if we want to fix the uh, uh, immigrant welfare problem, we fix the welfare state, right. and we uh, we have rule of law and control our own borders. So, but all of that said, uh, you know, immigration has uh, immigration has tanked. Then we get to the birth question. Right. Can, can I be, put a pause on that yeah, one? Yeah. Because I'm, I want to, you're getting into a handful of items that you mentioned in this article, and mm -hmm. I'd like to go through each of them at least mm -hmm. briefly. In theory, I'm repeating something you said a moment ago. Yeah. In theory, it should be perfectly possible for a modern society not only to maintain prosperity, but to increase it in the face of pervasive population aging and the demographic stagnation or depopulation. So the, the, the population gets older, it begins to get a little bit smaller, but as long as they do this and this and this, and this would involve innovation, it would involve being smart about education, developing human cap, all, you, you list the thing, then there's no reason why an older and smaller population shouldn't continue to be perfectly prosperous. All right, this path entails advances in research and knowledge creation with incessant innovation in the business sector, labor markets, and the policy realm. Now, let me take you through the Nick Everstadt checklist of how we're doing. Dynamism, economic dynamism, quoting you, Nick. Knowledge creation may still be proceeding apace. It is devilishly difficult to measure. And wealth creation continues at a remarkable pace. Yet dynamism in our economy and society is on the wane in some significant and easily verifiable respects. America's vitalizing churn is heading down, and America's health progress has gone badly off course. You've discussed health a moment ago, but what do you mean about churn, vitalizing churn? Well, there, there are lots of different ways you can look at the kind of dynamism of a society and an economy. Um, one way of looking at it is new business creation, new startups in relation to the existing uh, number of enterprises or businesses. Uh, as best we can measure this, it's been going steadily south since we started to collect these numbers in you know, the late 70s, early in 80s. In spite of the rise of Silicon Valley. Despite the rise of Silicon Valley, despite new McDonald's everywhere, um, despite everything that we see, the measured, if you measure dynamism that way, um, it's been less. Another obvious measure of mobility is like whether people get up and move. Americans used to be get up and move If the places. jobs are in Florida, you move to Florida. So uh, leave aside COVID because that was a lockdown time and it's completely um, unlike any other time. From the mid-80s until the day before uh, the Wuhan virus came to the United States, um, America's uh, proportion of population moving in any given year, even to an apartment next door in the same building, was heading south. And it's dropped by about half since the, uh, since the mid-80s. Now, you have to qualify that a little bit by saying, well, there's a lot of remote work. You can do stuff at home right. that you never right. could do before, and that's all true, but I'm not sure that that gets us over this particular hump that we just described. Hmm. Um, education, again, I'm quoting you, between the end, this is, this is a staggering thing, between the end of the Civil War and the late 1970s, got a little, a little over a century, between the end of the Civil War and the late 1970s, the United States was almost always the global leader in education attainment. But over the past two decades, adult educational attainment has been advancing at scarcely a third of that his historical pace, even as other countries surpass us." Close quote. What happened? We still haven't got a good answer to this because this is one of the big problems in America that somehow is managing to hide in plain sight. Elsewhere on a, another homework assignment, I talked about the new misery in the United States. And things like the death of dis deaths of despair, it took our health sciences economy 
a decade and a half to realize that the poor whites were killing themselves in these tragic new ways. Um, this problem of slower improvements in educational attainment has been in our face for almost 40 years and so far as I can tell, not more than a handful of economists and educators have even noticed it. Uh, I do not have the answer for why it has happened. I can tell you where it is happening. The epicenters are native-born Americans, native-born American men, native-born American Anglo men. There's a big overlap with the deaths of despair problem. I can identify it, I can't explain to you why it's happening, but its results, its consequences are alarming. There's a general correspondence, general correspondence, between improved educational attainment and improved productivity. Mm -hmm. If you do back of the envelope, and I like to be simplistic, uh, if you do back of the envelope, uh, the slowdown in educational attainment improvement looks like it's costing us at the moment about $4 trillion a year compared to our previous historical Trajectory. trend. Right. It's a lot of money. Here's a related item. I think it's related. You'll explain. The labor force, again, quoting you, Nick, in an aging society, making the most of existing manpower is of the essence. But America is also failing at this task. The backbone of the U.S. workforce is still the so-called prime-age male cohort, men from 25 to 54 years of age. But the current, the current prime male work rate is two and a half points lower than it was in 1940. 1940 sounds like the Second World War. It's not. Pearl Harbor isn't bombed until 1941. 1940 is the tail end of the Depression. And prime age male workforce participation is two points below what it was then? The, this is staggering. The work rate. This is another part, Peter, of this new misery. The big problems hiding in plain sight in America for some reason. Um, the work rate, the employment to population ratio, is, uh, as we'd say, uh, for men, civilian, non-institutional men, 25 to 54 years of age is, as we speak, worse than it was in the 1940 census, which was taken, as you indicate, in March of 40, when the national unemployment rate was 15%. So we right now have depression level employment rates for prime age men in the US. All right. Government. Quoting you once again, budget discipline and social policy reform are necessary for maintaining prosperity in an aging society, but America appears to have no appetite for either. Pay-as-you-go arrangements for old age pensions and health care may be an ingenious contrivance for a society where working age taxpayers greatly outnumber elderly beneficiaries, but the arithmetic becomes unforgiving if the ratio of funders to recipients plummets. All right, if I'm not mistaken, you're talking about Social Security, which accounts for roughly a quarter of the federal budget, and you're talking about medical spending, Medi Medicare, Medicaid, the Children's Health Insurance Program, and Obamacare. Those four programs account, again, for another 25% of federal spending. What you are saying is that because we have set this up the way we've set it up, one half of federal spending is simply becoming untenable. We've got a kind of a Ponzi scheme problem on our hands. And as you indicated, Peter, as long as you've got a growing base to the pyramid in relation to uh, the recipient peak, um, you can be pretty generous. Uh, when when things flip around, uh, you get whipsawed really fast. Uh, we haven't, we do not seem to have any appetite in either political party for 
balancing our budget and controlling our national finances the way we would with our household, uh, household budgets. Uh, and we have gotten into the very uh, dangerous habit of uh, borrowing to pay for current consumption. Uh, it's one thing to borrow money for a national emergency or for a war. You might even make the argument that it's okay to take out bonds to build infrastructure where you can amortize on some sort of, you know, uh, ROI scale, you know. But when you are basically using your credit card uh, to go to the Safeway, uh, things are not going to work out too well because today's uh, consumption for seniors like myself, are being financed by uh, the unborn. And that's not a good business model. Mm. Immigration. I'm going to quote you one more time, Nick. Only one policy can hope to affect long-term consequences in population size, and that policy is immigration. On the whole, this is a straightforward Simple declaratory yeah. sentence, yeah. but it's not straightforward. On the whole, assimilation works well in America. I'll have to come back and sure. ask you to explain that. Yet the Biden administration's witless posture on immigration, its maddening insouciance about our southern border and stubborn lack of concern about illegal immigrants seems almost designed to provoke anti-immigration outrage. So. Assimilation works well. I'll ask you to explain that in a moment. And your larger point is, because assimilation works well, some kind of sensible immigration policy where we control our borders but let people in according to sensible criteria and then don't demonize them ought to command bipartisan support. And in fact, it, 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 it creates people running around this town pulling out their hair gnashing their teeth. It's as maddening an issue as we have in American politics. But let's start with assimilation works well in America. On the whole, assimilation works well. Take a look at what happens with the children of newcomers in the United States. Overwhelmingly, they end up as loyal and productive Americans. As great citizens. Um, they learn English, they, they, get, they get jobs. They learn English, they, uh, they get, get an education, they work hard, and they believe uh, maybe more than, uh, than native-born Americans in the American dream. They're brought here, they're attracted by the American dream. Uh, and uh, risking all of your human capital in a passage to the United States uh, takes a certain amount of guts in general. Um, pluck, grit, let's put it that way. Um, compare us to, for example, Europe, which is a uh, prosperous, democratic uh, area full of open societies. Assimilation works well for a lot of newcomers there, but if you do the compare and contrast, I know which country I want to have the assimilation record of. It's going to be the USA. Uh, there is a much more problematic record in, I mean, Europe's a mixed bag, but on the whole, there's a much more problematic record with uh, uh, becoming citizens, with getting education, with uh, going into employment, uh, and with, um, with resentment of the country that they've uh, chosen as their home, or their parents have chosen as a home. Our, our record of assimilation is very good by international comparison. There are other countries that also look pretty good, like Canada, like Australia, um, like um, New Zealand, Israel. But uh, for a large country, there's no country that's got an assimilation record as good as ours. All right. But you'd stop short, I know you'd stop short, 
I'm stating this just to give you the chance to address it. There may be a tickle of a, of a worry here. You've just said native-born American males, especially native-born white American males, are underperforming. Yes. Despairs of de death are up. Yep. Work performance, workplace perform, workforce participation is down. We have here a sorry group of people. Let in the immigrants to do the jobs these guys should be doing. So I took economics also. I mean, admittedly, it was back in the Stone Age. But I learned at that time that if you have more of a supply of something, you make it less expensive. We have a big supply of lower-skilled labor from abroad in the United States. Um, the economics one I took uh, back shortly after the Civil War would tell me that that would have a depressing impact on wage levels for less skilled Americans. And I think that is true. I think that is true. That being said, the patterns of employment for less skilled American men bear no correspondence to what we would think of we would be recognizing from that natural experiment. Uh, the differences in attachment to the workforce seem to have to do a lot with things like family structure, which has not got to do with wages, uh, and uh, with uh, attachment to various social welfare programs, with one's criminal record, which again isn't necessarily a jobs uh, wage question. And we've just had, we've just ran a complete, per, almost perfect natural experiment in the COVID time. We had a drop off of about a million uh, immigrants who would have been in the labor force. Uh, and what happened? Uh, we had an increase in unfilled jobs by about 4 million during the COVID time. Uh, employers are begging for workers. This, I don't know, no, there was no time in my life, I don't think, when workers had as much bargaining power right. as they have now. Right. And this isn't all for coders and hedge funds. They're not just looking for those. It's in the service industries, in uh, restauranting, hotels, and other things where really the only skills you need are showing up on time, every day, drug-free. Right. And um, there may be a longer-term impact from this natural experiment, but we've had two years of it, and it has not been drawing people back off the couch. Population growth is slowing. It looks like a permanent new trend. Soon enough, the population will begin sinking. To remain a prosperous, vibrant economy in these circumstances, we need to do this and this and this and this. And we're not doing this and this and this and this. Which brings us right back to the first question. Why don't we just get the birth rate right back up? Uh, if the federal government is so good, I would almost be willing to argue this is the only thing the federal government is any good at, and that is spending other people's money. Why don't we just encourage higher birth rates through various forms of subsidies, tax relief, and so forth? And Nick Everstadt's reply is, again to quote you, Nick, Incentives to boost birth rates are likely to be costly and to elicit only modest and perhaps fleeting demographic results, close quote. How come? And, and, and we have experiments attempting to subsidize birth, in, great, increases in births, attempts to subsidize it in one way or another that are taking place in Singapore, France, Hungary, I think Sweden as well. Absolutely. So we, we must know something about these experiments, right? The results? Right. Well, we've seen the results of the experiments. Um, they are, I will give you my reading on them. My reading is not uncontested because baby bonus programs have got a lot of proponents in Europe and some here in the U.S. already. My reading is that it's uh, very expensive for temporary passing blips in fertility increase, which lead to subsequent slumps. The Swedes have been. You, you can buy babies forward, so to speak. Yeah, but you, you can't you buy can more change, of them. You can change timing. If if some if some parents are on the fence about a second or third child, let's say, um, 
And all of a sudden, there's a baby bribe that's offered to them. And they may decide to have the child now, um, but instead of having it uh, three years later or four years later. And if you look at that in aggregate, you get what the Swedish demographers call the Swedish roller coaster, which is you put in a new subsidy for kids, the birth rate goes up, and then it goes back down further to below where it was when you first put the subsidy in, because you haven't changed people's mentality. You haven't changed people's desire about family size. Uh, if you really wanted to get into the business of uh, turning women into baby ranchers, you'd have to do something about the opportunity cost of their time. So maybe you'd want a program that involved, let's say, 50% of the GDP. I don't think anybody's going to be uh, proposing that anytime soon. All right, this gets us right to the heart of, of your essay and of the matter. Quoting you yet again, the single best predictor for national fertility rates happens to be wanted family size as reported by women. Now you note there are polls that ask women how many children they'd like, and you note that this doesn't correlate perfectly with birth rates, but it's the best indicator. In one sense, this is a reassuring, even heartening finding. It highlights the agency at the very heart of our humanity. You're talking about free will there, people choosing their family size. But if we permit the non-material realm of life to figure into our inquiry, we may conclude that proposals to revive the American birth rate through subsidies vastly underestimate the challenge. The challenge may ultimately prove to be civilizational in nature." Close quote. Okay, so I look at, first of all, that hits like a two by four. Civilizational in nature. And on the one hand, I think to myself, wait a minute, aren't we all supposed to be delighted that in this modern world, women are in a position to participate in the workforce, they're in a position to choose more carefully, more explicitly, more intentionally, the number of children they'd like to have. Aren't we supposed to believe that that's a wonderful thing and that releasing that many women to the workforce should increase the dynamism and growth of our economy? All that, good, 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 good. On the other hand, I think back to what little I remember about American demographic history. And we got low birth rates during the depression sure. because everybody was poor right. and they were discouraged and they didn't want to bring children into that world. And then we got low birth rates during the second world war because life was frightening and the men were away risking their lives. And then we get Harry Truman and Dwight David Eisenhower. And my own reading of that history is that it's complicated. Truman was probably a much better president than he's generally granted, but set all that aside. What happens is, whether you agree with this or that policy, whether you think Ike should have pushed back harder against the New Deal, both of those presidents said with regard to domestic policy at least, Let's just leave it alone. Let's give people a settled set of rules, a settled America, so they can have families. And they did. And you and I are both baby boomers. We are mm -hmm. both products. Absolutely. And we think to ourselves, this is an achievement of American history, that we struggle through the Depression, and we win the Second World War, and then we achieve enough stability and prosperity to permit people to do what they most want to do, and that is to have children. And that is good. It is a triumphant moment in American history. So what's going on here? Why should it be? May I put it one more way? I'll put it a different way. You have four kids. I've, I've got you by one. <laughs> Shouldn't it? it it, don't those of us who've had children feel that having children was the biggest thing that we'd ever done in our lives, the sure. best thing that we've ever done in our lives? Why aren't children a luxury good? Why don't we have more of them as we become a richer society instead of fewer? All right, these are the bundles of yeah, questions, sure. Nick, in my, in my head when, yeah. when I read that, 
We've got a civilizational challenge. Our civilization no longer likes life. Why? So the demographers have all of these really neat little tools. And if you give them assumptions, they can calculate what trajectories are going to look like in the future. Mm -hmm. But demographers cannot tell you uh, what those assumptions should be. They cannot, uh, they cannot actually put the uh, parameters into the black box. And for that, I think economics is fine so far as it goes, but what you really need instead of a Nobel laureate in economics is a Nobel laureate in literature because you're talking about zeitgeist, you're talking about the human heart, you're talking about all of the things that bring meaning to humanity and the fears of humanity in ways that economists aren't so good at calculating or much less demographers. We've, as parents, we know how um, wonderful children are and what a blessing it is to be a parent. But one thing that I will say about children is for all of their um, boundless benefits, um, they're not convenient. And we have, uh, we have moved increasingly into a world, and this is just one take on a much more complicated set of questions that you've asked, but we've moved into a world in which convenience uh, is prized and which and in which autonomy personal autonomy uh, is cherished and in which constraints on personal autonomy uh, are increasingly viewed as onerous uh, you don't have to be uh, Leo Tolstoy to see what that means about desire for children. Add to that the big change in lived, re lived experience, in the lived reality for young people today as compared to those, you know, we can all talk, you know, give grandpa's war stories about mm -hmm. what life was like back in the 1980s, mm -hmm. but people who were uh, thinking about having children today do not live in Reagan's America. They live in a place that's got this new misery shaping it so much. Europe provides a case study in how a sea change in values can lead to a sea change in demography. Over the last two decades, the worldview of American youth and younger adults has become much more European. That's what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Sure. All right. And not in a good way. And not in a good way. All right. Again, I, I go back to this, going back, back and forth, back and forth. On the one hand, I really I struggle against the thesis. It's not a thesis. It's a set of observations very beautifully laid out. I'd rather it weren't so. Let's put it that way. And then I keep, well, all right. This is civilizational challenges. There's very little that Little Robinson or Great Big Everstat can do about that. So again, how do we find a way to live with this? And I go one more time to the question, what, do, what difference does it make? Europeans lead good lives. Despite the difficulty in assimilating the one million immigrants that Angela Merkel permitted to enter Germany, despite the lack of dynamism in their economy, they rely on us in all kinds of ways for technological innovation, for military protection. So still, in decline, though they may in some basic way be, Europe's a comfortable place to live. So why not? Why not just settle into a comfortable decline? And Nick Everstadt replies, consider the moral and ideological baggage that sub-replacement fertility is likely to drag along with it. Pessimism, hesitance, dependence, self-indulgence, resentment, division. Do we really think there will be less of these in a 1.5 child America? Explain that. Well, if we were well-behaved robots 
and uh, each uh, robot mom and dad had an average of 1.5 robot uh, rising generation uh, entrance. We could manage uh, we could manage population decline uh, perfectly well uh, for the, all of the other reasons that I've mentioned. Uh, improving education, improving health, improving technology, all of the new possibilities that are coming forward. The devilish difficulty, I think, is the uh, swamp of attitudes and values that are associated with sub-replacement fertility in the richest and most productive societies that humanity has ever yet created or seen. And in Europe and in the United States, in affluent societies, we have seen this ideational, well, moral, if you will, revolution over the past several generations that has uh, led to the triumph of solipsism, if you will, and the downgrading of the, sort, the very sorts of obligations that are necessary to nurture a rising generation and to continue a society. Um, we, can, uh, we can outsource, we can increase uh, immigration from abroad to take care of the headcount question. Uh, what we can't do without a sort of an ideational, call it a moral uh, transformation, is get back to a place where people are confident and um, brave enough to uh, maintain a, uh, maintain a uh, natural rate of replacement for society. The land of the free and the home of the brave. And bravery ought to be construed as the guts to have kids, well, roughly. If it's good for national character. You know, I mean, we get out, you know, we get out a little bit. We get on a bus or a subway, a uh, metro. Um, what strikes me uh, so strongly about um, young people I meet today, and I realize I may not have a representative sample, is just how afraid they are. They're afraid of everything. They're afraid of the. They're afraid the planet's doomed. Uh, they're afraid about committing to a job, much less committing to a relationship, much less committing to having so. kids. Uh, it's beyond. It, it's a sort of an angst that um, we don't, it's hard to find a good historical analogy for that, this angst in our country. Further, you write, would a 1.5 child America really be willing to make incessant patriotic sacrifices to defend itself and its allies, or to preserve the post-war liberal economic and political order upon which our prosperity and security so greatly depend, close quote. And those lists of items we went through on what we as a society need to do and are failing to do, we were talking about just that, what we as a society need to do. Here is the question of what we need to do in the world. The world is a dangerous place. And for all its faults and all our crudenesses and stupidities and what, the way we've conducted our foreign policy over the last 75 years, the world is a freer and a safer place because of Americans are willing to sacrifice. Would a 1.5 child America really be willing to make the sacrifices? There's no scientific reason that a sub-replacement population shouldn't be able to step up to patriotism or see the challenges in the world and deal with them. Um, what I was suggesting there is that if we look at the real existing situation that we have, 
if we look at the tangle of perverse uh, values, attitudes, outlooks that seems to accompany our particular slump into below replacement fertility, um, that tangle is also a tangle that has big uh, implications for not just sacrifice within the family, but sacrifice outside the family. You do offer, you do offer hope, or at least an example of one way out of this. The civilizational undertow now drawing Western societies into ever deeper sub-replacement is not inevitable. I cling to those two words right there, not inevitable. Israel provides proof to the contrary. Explain that. Explain Israeli well, so, demographics. Um, when, I, when I started uh, trying to understand population trends a couple of generations ago, uh, I wrote a study with a dear friend of mine about Israel, and, and we were uh, more or less entirely wrong about this. Um, we argued back in the late 1970s that Israel was going to have to release the West Bank and Gaza for demographic reasons because they were a Western society that was going to head down towards sub-replacement fertility and the population of Palestinian origin uh, was having you know, eight, seven, six babies and you could just draw the lines and see where things went. Um, but a funny thing happened on the way to uh, Palestinian demographic dominance of uh, greater Israel. It didn't happen. Uh, and the reason it didn't happen is because Israeli Jewry did not uh, agree to go into sub-replacement. Instead, over the last generation, fertility levels in Israel have actually gone up. Uh, and now for and it's not just the Orthodox not just the Orthodox even people who describe themselves as not terribly observant uh, the it's across the board so far as we can see and for Israeli Jewry as a whole it's above three births per woman per lifetime on average which is, I don't need to emphasize to you, way different from any other affluent, open, democratic society these days. And the uh, Arab birth rate has declined at the, the same Arab time? The Arab birth rate right. has plummeted. Right. The, uh, and, uh, which, is, by the way, is true in all of the rest of the Arabic-speaking world. I just want to repeat this because I, I had this wrong myself, and so other people may have a mis- We're told over and over again that the, among the Orthodox in Israel, the birth rate is very, very high. And that's true. Yep. But your argument is, not the argument, simple observation of the facts, actually, even among secular Jews in Israel, the birth rate is well above replacement. It, on the whole, it, yes, on the whole, and it has been going up. And it has been going up. Over Ours has been going down. That of Europe has been going down. Yep. China has been going down. Yeah. And Israel has been going up. Yep. And so that says something, well, it says something spectacular and all, about all kinds of things, but in particular, the role of women. What do we know about Israeli society, at least among secular, non-Orthodox Israeli Jewry, is that the women participate in the IDF, they fight in the army, they're fully integrated into the workforce. This is not a, a choice between a modern society and a high birth rate. This is a modern society with a high birth rate. Is that correct? Absolutely. It's a serious country with a serious approach to its demographic future. And uh, it's one that the, this is not the result of government policy. This is not a particular government policy or a particular baby bonus. This is a mentality. Perhaps, you write, it would be crude and simplistic to say that Israelis want their country to have a future and want their descendants to be part of it. But then again, such a reading might not be all that far off base. So it's what people believe. I, I, just, I found myself in a conversation with a young Israeli woman 
this is in France, a couple of years ago, and somehow or other, we'd only just met, it was a business conference, actually, it had nothing to do with think tanks. Somehow or other, this question of demographics came up. And I asked why Israeli demographics were different from those in the rest of the West. And she said, I think my country, Israel, I think my country is still a cause. Is that it? Uh, until you come up with a better explanation, Peter, that sounds like a pretty good one. All right. Okay. Nick, our friend Roger Hertog, major figure in Wall Street for many, many years, put me up to interviewing you on this. He said, Nick is doing, but what he said is Nick is the only person doing really serious, sustained work on this. Apart from anything else, Roger said this because he knows Wall Street in detail. The economic implications haven't even begun to be taken seriously on Wall Street, where they have incentives right. for getting these things right. right. Um, you write something about this, and everybody stops action to see what the latest that Nick has written. But we do that because it's, there aren't a dozen other people studying. Why is this? Is it because it's so grim, so unrelievedly grim, that nobody, that there's, even among intellectuals, even in think tanks, there's a kind of denial. We'd rather not. We'd rather not look at that. Why, 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 is, this, why is this not really part of the national conversation? Well, Peter, remember what I was saying about things, big things that are hiding in plain sight, mm. right? We've got, we've got this data revolution. We've got this information era. We've got these fantastic statistical tools, but they don't, do you that much good if you don't ask the right questions or you don't see the things you know hiding in plain sight? And there's no—I don't think there's any science to that. We've got um, we've got a lot of really well-trained demographers, economists, statisticians, um, but I think that in a lot of the academy, there's. Um, there's an incentive to kind of play small ball. Mm -hmm. There's an incentive to come up with an elegant little permutation on a formula that'll get you tenure. Um, you will notice that I'm not uh, in the university. I'm in a think tank. So I don't have that same set of uh, disincentives to work with. Why people in business are not noticing this is a, in a way a more interesting question, I think. I mean, I gather that the richest guy in the world seems to think that demography is a problem. Elon Musk, that's exactly right. Problem. Elon Musk does see this, and he tweets about it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That the biggest challenge we face now is depopulation. All right, all right. So we have Nick Eberstadt and the richest man in the world. That's not I, a bad start. I'll take that company. <laughs> that's, that's not. Um, Nick, let me quote you another time here. A couple of last questions yeah. now. People under 40 do not have much memory of an America with a vibrant, private sector-driven economy. They came of age during a strange historical run of unusually poor political leadership. From Clinton to Biden, they have arguably known only substandard presidencies, red and blue alike. You're talking about our kids, of course. Theirs is an America where public confidence in the nation's basic institutions has undergone a gruesome and wholesale slide. Do we wonder that millennials' expectations and desires about family and children might be diverging from those of their mourning in America parents? Well, that, that went through me like kind of a knife because, of course, you and I, like so many of our friends, came here during the 80s. And during the 80s, we felt as though the country was going someplace. Sure. Taxes got cut. We thought that was an achievement. Now we understand the importance of low taxes. Federal budget came more or less under control, at least shrank relative to growth in the private sector. We stand up to the Soviets. Lo and behold, the Soviets throw it in, and we win the Cold War, and America seems a pretty glorious place. And my thinking and your thinking is conditioned by that experience. Mm -hmm. And our kids' thinking just isn't. So, so what do you say? Here's the question, Nick, because you're a wise man. Now I'm going to ask, this is a question to you in your capacity as a wise friend and not as a demographer. 
let's imagine Augustine of Hippo in the early 5th century, and there he is in North Africa, and he's receiving bulletins about the sack of Rome. And this high civilization that meant everything to him is gone. He watches as across the Mediterranean, Rome falls. And yet he leads an impressive and good enough life that he comes down to us as St. Augustine. If we're stuck with this America of creeping despair and of continuing loss in its relative importance in the rest of the world, what do you say to your kids about how to lead a good life in different circumstances from the ones in which you yourself grew up? Sure. Um, well, I mean, uh, the future starts here, and the future starts um, in your own little circles. And there's, uh, there's, no, there's no reason that you can't be uh, micro-optimistic, even if you see some pretty pessimistic things going on. Uh, and if you believe that you are in charge of your own destiny, that's a pretty good starting point. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot that went on that we missed, Peter, I'm uh, afraid to say, after we won the Cold War. These trends that I mentioned, uh, the, uh, the failure to generate wealth for the bottom half of our society decade after decade, the slowdown of education, um, these are not immutable. None of these trends are immutable. And uh, I still don't think that we're at the stage in the game where it's smart to bet against the United States of America. Um, there are things which may be going on now that nerds like me won't be able to recognize for years because we look in the rearview mirror by the nature of our craft. And there are things that government and experts can't predict that have revolutionized and transformed our society before, including great religious awakenings. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as my much better half, uh, Mary Eberstadt, has said from time to time, she'd settle for a minor awakening. <laughs> that wouldn't be so bad either. So, okay, so this really is the last question. And I'm going to ask my boomer friend, this is boomer to boomer. Mm -hmm. 1970s, mm -hmm. economic stagnation. Yep. By the end of the decade, inflation is in double digits. Arab oil embargoes. Mm -hmm. Soviets advance throughout the world. Yep. They get countries in Africa, Central America, expand their Navy, Blue Water Navy. And we have a collapse in national morale, particularly yep. with a defeat in, in Vietnam and then the agony of Watergate, and then in the 1980s, through policy, but still, the economy rebounds, and there's a restoration of national morale, which I'm not making up. All the polls pick it up, yeah. and that Reagan re-election slogan of mourning again in America is rings true enough to the American people to enable him to carry 49 yeah. out of 50 states, mm -hmm. and at the end of that decade, the Berlin Wall comes down. We go from 1979, the Iranian hostage crisis, and that national humiliation, mm -hmm. to the fall of the Berlin Wall in one decade. Mm -hmm. Do we possess the resources, political, spiritual, human capital? Is this country still capable of another act of, of national self-renewal? Absolutely, of course it is. I mean, we've have, we've got strangely similar circumstances as you uh, beautifully indicated. Um, not the least of them being a, an incompetent, uh, humiliating, uh, misbegotten uh, White House at the moment. Uh, a lot of Carter flashbacks these days for uh, for those of us who are old enough to have the pleasure of having lived through that. Um, and of course, we've got the resources. Uh, there is, there really is no close second in the world. If you look at China in its particulars, which would be the competitor 
to us. There isn't a really a close second yet. Uh, we do not have the same uh, absolutely unlimited reach that we had at the end of the Cold War, but that's such an unnatural, un historically unusual situation. The, we've got the resources in our country and we've got the people in our country who, of course, can do this again. The one thing that I would caution about is that we have 40 years of poison uh, distributed through our societies through an increasingly malign university system. And we have seen a, um, a Gramscian march through the institutions of severely um, problematic uh, points of view that in the old days uh, would have been unmockingly called un-American or anti-American. We have that poison to drain from our society before we can, I think, really flourish again. But that's certainly not impossible either. It looks hard right now. But if you recall 1979, what 1979 looked like, uh, very few people would have bet at that moment uh, where we'd end up at, on Christmas Day in 1991 with the dissolution of the USSR. Nicholas Eberstadt, thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. It's always a pleasure. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, Recording today in the offices of the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. I'm Peter Robinson. Thank you.